This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America, brought to you through the cooperation of the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, and Link TV. And now, here's host Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week, questioning authority and the competency of governments in Venezuela and Brazil, from the corruption case rocking Brasilia to human rights and politics in Caracas. We'll have a wide-ranging discussion. But first, Natalie Ottinger is back this week, and she has our weekly review of news from around Latin America. Police in Argentina report they found the body of one of Argentina's leading voices for transgender rights in her apartment this week. Murdered after an apparently violent struggle, Diana Saikayan was the first transgender leader in Argentina to be issued an official identity card with her new gender listed, a policy of the current Argentine government to honor gender choices and support the lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender community. The LGBT community, President Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner, devoted part of a speech to call for justice. I ask for the cooperation between the Metropolitan and Federal Police to quickly get to the bottom of what happened in this terrible crime. Sakayan's murder is the third reported case of a transgender woman murdered in Argentina in the past four weeks, and the first case this month reported in the country's capital of Buenos Aires. The LGBT rights group called Transgender Europe reports that 78% of all murders of transgender women worldwide happen in Latin America. More evacuations in Guatemala this week as the country works to recover from a major mudslide that claimed hundreds of lives. The Guatemalan government moved hundreds of people out of the neighborhood of Santa Carolina Pinula on the outskirts of Guatemala City. The government is concerned the first slide has created instability for the entire neighborhood. Rescue workers have officially recovered the bodies of 253 people in this disaster, but an additional 374 people remain missing and are presumed dead. The community was built in a ravine, and heavy rains caused a hillside bordering the area to collapse. Rescuers report the mud covering the neighborhood is 80 feet deep in some areas. More wrangling this week between the British government, the government of Ecuador, and WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange. Assange has eluded British authorities for more than three years by successfully seeking asylum in Ecuador's embassy in London. Earlier this week, British authorities pulled their round-the-clock police guards in front of the embassy. The British estimate they have spent $18.5 million for surveillance to make sure Assange does not leave the embassy. The British want to hand Assange over to the Swedish authorities for questioning in regards to sexual assault charges in that country. Assange promptly ordered a pizza delivery to celebrate this new leniency and lifting of the guard. But the mood was tenser later in the week when Ecuador asked the UK for permission to have Assange taken to a hospital to have his shoulder scanned for pain. And British authorities refused to grant permission for such a medical transfer. For the first time in more than 50 years, Cuban musicians entertained the U.S. president at the White House this week. President Barack Obama invited a popular collective of Cuban musicians known as the Buena Vista Social Club to entertain a packed house of guests. 
The president says he's been interested in the group's music since the late 1990s, when he picked up their popular first CD. The Buena Vista Social Club is on a worldwide farewell tour. For Latin Pulse, I'm Natalie Ottinger. Thanks, Natalie. Our shout-out this week goes to all of the tech heads and other listeners in Silicon Valley, California. Outside of the suburbs of Washington, D.C., our next biggest group of listeners all time resides in Mountain View, California. So we say thank you very much to all of our listeners in Silicon Valley and elsewhere around the globe. And now the second part of our in-depth interview with David Smildy concerning Venezuela. Smildy is the co-editor of the book Venezuela's Bolivarian Democracy, the editor of the Venezuelan Politics and Human Rights blog, and a professor at Tulane University. Significantly, Smildy's analysis of the government of President Nicolas Maduro has become more critical in the past year as evidence has mounted about the corruption in Venezuela's military and the human rights abuses aimed at the country's opposition political leaders. With elections for the country's National Assembly coming in December and following the controversial sentencing of opposition leader Leopoldo Lopez to 13 years in prison, we asked Smildy to reflect on the current state of political affairs. He spoke to us via Skype from New Orleans, Louisiana. If you look at recent elections, you look at what's been going on in Venezuela, it, it's, it's very clear the government is against the wall. I think it's it, I don't think it's going to uh, try to do outright fraud in these elections. No, I think a lot of its, its international and national legitimacy depends on the fact that it's repeatedly won elections. However, what it's done in the past and what it's currently doing is in, in many different ways tilting the field. And so, you know, right from the beginning this, this year, what, you know, in June, they disqualified five very popular uh, politicians that were going to run for uh, the elections. They just disqualified another one, Carlos Becci. So, so six very important politicians uh, have, have been disqualified in the opposition. You know, there's widespread use of state media and state employees and state institutions in favor of the campaign. You know, the, the entire system, you know, there's some gerrymandering, which is, you know, which, which happens everywhere, especially in the United States. There's gerrymandering, but there's also, you know, constitutionally, there is uh, something called malapportionment, uh, what, what specialists call malapportionment. Uh, which in Venezuela works in the sense that there's a real strong rural bias. You know, the rural areas uh, elect uh, elect a greater proportion of representatives to the National Assembly per population than urban areas, and so that favors the government. You know, there's uh, uh, a number of, of other issues. The uh, government, for example, immediately after the opposition held their primaries came forward, you know, selecting the candidate, who the candidates would be, which is something that's very complex for the opposition because they have all these different parties that are part of the the the, the unitary democratic uh, table, the, the Mesa de Unidad Democrática. And uh, so they held these, these, uh, these, these primaries, and a couple of days later, the National Electoral Council announces that uh, 40, at least 40 percent of the candidates have to be women. So that throws a whole wrench into uh, the, it, it's a, that's a noble thing to do, but they did it immediately after the primaries. And I think that's clearly to try to uh, cause trouble for the opposition. So, you know, I think uh, we can expect more issues like this. No, I think that the April 2013 elections, 
there were serious problems on election day. You know, the, uh, the all the different complaints uh, that the Capriles campaign made about assisted voting, about uh, double voting, you know, about voter intimidation. There are a lot of issues. Venezuela, the, the, the electronic machines, I think, work very well. And really, there's not a problem there. And unfortunately, that's what most people focus on. But there are a lot of issues around the polling, you know, about who gets to vote, you know, and making sure that each person has the right to vote once and only once, that, that there, there are some real problems with, with the whole system. The CNE in 2013 also showed itself. Um, and that's the electoral body there in, in Venezuela. Yeah, the, the electoral body, you know, after the 2013 election, which were very close and were very contested, they really, I don't think by understanding, did due diligence in a timely and transparent fashion. And that has really hurt the CNEs, uh, the perceptions of the CNE among the population. No, it used to be, before 2013, the CNE had uh, a majority of support. People really trusted the CNE. Now it's down to around 30, between 30 and 40 percent. There's a, there's a, there's a lot of distrust in in the electoral authority, and and there's a lot of people that think that the elections are not secret, that the that the vote is not secret. And so, you know, I think uh, these elections are, are very serious for the government, and you know they're nibbling away at the edges in, in, in multiple different ways to try and reduce the opposition's advantage. I don't think it's going to be enough, no, and I don't think it's enough to di- disqualify these elections and say they weren't le- legitimate so far. But we'll have to see. We'll have to see how it all plays out. I think a lot of this will depend on the quality of the international and national observation uh, that happens, and uh, uh, we'll see how it plays out. This is all happening in the in the background, also of the the recent sentencing of of one of the leaders of the dissident movement, Leopoldo Lopez. And so I wonder also what you think about the the fairness and equity of that particular legal case. I'm not a big fan of Leopoldo Lopez as a politician. I think he's he's somebody who, um, you know, represents an older type of opposition that that really just wants to roll the clock back and thinks, you know, that it doesn't really have a sense of the incredible inequality and poverty there is in Venezuela and really focuses on questions of liberty. However, I do not think that he, uh, you know, is is a terrorist, or I don't think that he. Um, should have been in jail in the first place. I don't think he got a fair trial. No, this this trial, uh, presiding over this trial, was a a provisional judge. No, a, a judge that does not have actual tenure, but someone who's provisionally in that place and can be removed any day. So it's somebody that doesn't you know have the position and security to be really independent and objective. And if you look at the trial, the the government brought in you know dozens and dozens of of witnesses, I, I think actually it was over a hundred. Whereas almost all of the opposition witnesses were declared ineligible. I think there's only two or three uh, opposition witnesses, and so you know I think the, the it was a miscarriage of justice. No, I think it's uh, it's really unfortunate. You know, I, I, I think uh, I think uh, the opposition frequently calls people uh, anybody who's in jail from the opposition a political prisoner, but I think. Even when they're not really a political prisoner, but I think Leopoldo Lopez actually is a political prisoner. He's a prisoner of conscience, and and I think it's it's really unfortunate. Your book's title is Venezuela's Bolivarian Democracy. Is democracy at threat in Venezuela? Are we past the area of democracy in Venezuela? 
Oh, no, I don't think we're past the area of democracy. I, I do think that democracy is, is under threat. You know, I think democracy is never uh, a steady state. I think democracy is, is always contested and always under threat in every country. I think Venezuela is currently having more trouble now and has a, has a uh, democracy that uh, has a lot of issues. I mean, I think there's been a lot of improvements in democracy during the, the, the Chavez years, and I think there's been a lot of setbacks. And I, I think, uh, nevertheless, I think people have a vote. They have a, uh, an anonymous vote. And people are enfranchised, and they've shown time and again that, that they will go to the polls and they will, you know, surprise people. You know, in, in 2007, they put back Chavez's, you know, if you go back to 1998, they, they elected Chavez. You no, know, you go to 2004, they supported him in a referendum that everybody thought Chavez was going to lose. 2007, they put back his or put down his constitutional refer, or, uh, reform that everybody thought was going to pass. And so... I think um, no. I, I think it's it's still a democracy. It's a democracy that has some has some problems, has some issues, and uh, has a government that doesn't seem to want to play by the rules or doesn't it definitely does not want to give up power. But in the end, I think um, they are. I, I think they fully intend to go to elections. If you look at some of the things they've done, for example. One of the things they did uh, was take. There's something called the Latin American Parliament. And that, in every country, sends representatives. And now in Venezuela, these representatives were elected in legislative elections, basically on the proportion or on the percentages of the opposition versus the pro, or the, the, depending on the percentage that the different parties got, that's who got to pick the representatives. Well, what they did is they changed this so that the National Assembly is going to be able to pick it. And one of the reasons, the only reason that they would do this is because they think they're going to lose the popular vote. And they think that possibly even losing the popular vote, they could control the Congress. Uh, and beyond that, you know, just uh, if they don't have these parlatino elections uh, there, you know, it'll be a little bit easier to hide the fact that they lose the popular vote. And so they wouldn't be doing that if they're actually going to cancel elections. Uh, I, I think they're uh, planning to go to elections. I think they're no, they're going to take a hit. I think they're trying to do everything possible to minimize uh, their losses. You no, know, and I think uh, frequently they're going to they're be cross, crossing the line. But I suspect we're going to have have uh, a reasonable a reasonable vote in December. What haven't we covered that you think is important to cover? Um, I think electoral observation is going to be key. You no. Know, um, of course, it's been in the news the fact that the uh, Organization of American States have, was expressed its willingness to come to Venezuela and and observe the elections. Also, the uh, European Union expressed its willingness. Venezuela basically uh, rejected those offers and you know invited UNASUR. And of course, UNASUR uh, came to Venezuela for elections in 2012 and 2013 under the figure of electoral accompaniment, not as actual observers, but as accompaniment. And what that amounted to was basically coming on election day and, you know, going, uh, uh, being carted around in, in, in government uh, transportation and, and seeing some polling sites, but without any real independent access to the polls or any technical capacity to do a quick count or, or really even the ability to make declarations on your own. Well, uh, so I think there's some some justified frustration with that among people in the opposition. But I think, you know, we could see something quite different from UNASUR this time. You no, know, they are coming. 
They are uh, uh, currently in negotiations in mid in mid-September, TBSI Lucena, who's the, the president of the National Electoral Council, said they had a, come to agreement with UNASUR, and it's going to be the most robust, uh, most complete uh, electro, uh, accompaniment re regime that they've ever had. Of course, she didn't say what it actually involved. Um, uh, Ernesto Samper said similar things and said they're, they're still working uh, some issues out. So... Apparently, they're, they're negotiating still, the, the National Electoral Council and UNASUR, what this observation uh, is going to amount to. And it could be, it could be something that's, that's more robust and, and, and has a little bit more teeth to it, a little bit more impartiality and objectivity. And, and I, I hope that's the case because I think that could you know, keep these elections on the straight and narrow and I think could provide them some more legitimacy among, among skeptics, and, and, and of which there are plenty. Thank you so much, David Smildy of Tulane University, the co-editor of the book, Venezuela's Bolivarian Democracy, and the editor of the Venezuela Politics and Human Rights blog, our guest today on Latin Pulse, joining us via Skype from New Orleans. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. This planet we call Earth, abundant with new food, new cures, new life, an amazing place. Please don't let it vanish without a trace. Call for your free World Wildlife Fund Action Kit with 10 simple things you can do to help leave our children a living planet. Call 1-800-C-A-L-L-W-W-F. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. Brazil's Supreme Court came to President Dilma Rousseff's aid this week, at least temporarily halting a move to impeach the Brazilian president. But Rousseff's critics in Brazil's Congress vow they will try new legislative tactics to remove the unpopular president from office. Recent polls show about two-thirds of the country's citizens want Rousseff to leave office now, although she was re-elected a year ago. Her problems stem from a corruption scandal that links the state oil firm Petrobras and the country's largest construction firms with a complex scheme of bribes and kickbacks involving members of her political party, the Workers' Party, sometimes called the PT, by its Portuguese initials. We asked Carlos Pereira at the Vitulio Vargas Foundation to reflect on Rousseff and Brazilian politics. He's the co-author of Making Brazil Work, Checking the President in a Multi-Party System. He joined us via Skype from Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. I think that in order to work well, we do have to have a good manager. And unluckily, and we do not have a good manager later. And, and, you know, we do have what I call in that book a particular combination of multi-party presidential regime, right? Until quite recently, this combination used to be considered a very, you know, danger combination. Usually, the president would have difficulties of governing because they would come up out of the election without majority in Congress. The president would have to build a post-electoral majority. And it's quite hard to build a post-electoral majority without an, you know, a, a clear-cut agenda or platform. So presidents usually and have to offer something in exchange in order to convince parties to go along with the president in a multi-party setting, right? And also the president has to be constitutionally strong in order to be the coordinator of this game, 
has to have the control of the agenda of the Congress, and has to have an available and tradable currencies and to trade with legislatures in order to build and sustain during the term a majority coalition. And in addition to have a very strong guy like a president with currencies, we also have institutions capable of saying no to this strong guy when and this president misbehave. The problem that we have under the PT administration, the Works Party administration initiated in 2003 with former President Lula and with the current President Dilma Rousseff, is that they have made very bad choices of how to build and sustain coalition. They, they decided to, to build a very large coalition, a very heterogeneous coalition, and a very monopolistic coalition. So, so they create trouble to themselves because they decided to concentrate the great majority of cabinet positions and bureaucratic positions and financial resources to PT members and delegated very few political and financial resources to coalition allies. In a very heterogeneous coalition, we have a very and parties that are extreme left and parties that are on the extreme right of the expectant and also center parties inside of the same coalitions are very fruit-solid coalition, and also a very large, you know, and the, the average of party numbers of in the Lula's coalition was eight to nine parties, whereas in Cardoso was four parties. So Cardoso, the former president Cardoso, decided to create a very small coalition, very homogeneous coalition, and decided to share power with them. So Cardoso had very few problems, and, and the cost of governing was relatively small when compared with PT's administration. You know, we had the institutional conditions to make Brazil work, but in order to do so, the president has to know how to do it. And, and I do believe that and the current president never fully understood how this system really worked. This has been the knock on on Dilma Rousseff, the president, that she is not the politician that Lula was and therefore can't run things in a complex system the way that he did. Uh, Some would say that he, whether you are a a supporter of Lula or not, that he was a successful president. Uh, At least he maintains particular popularity. And so you have this president who is hamstrung with these corruption scandals now uh, and has very little power to share. Um, Some would argue that because of the corruption scandals, she has less power. Although I would I would agree with you that Lula, especially and and in in his first term was a, a very successful presidency. And but the problem in terms of and and dealing with coalition allies initiated in 2000. Three, remember the Mensalon scandal? We, we had the Mensalon scandal in 2003 to 2005 that had the same and features of the Petrolon scandal. So the, 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 the only difference is the scale. But and it's the same mechanic, it's the same rationale. So, and, and PT decided 
under Lula's administration to build a very large, heterogeneous and monopolized coalition. And sooner or later, Lula had to find alternative ways, alternative sources of resources to compensate external coalition allies. Because different than other political parties, PT is very fractionalized, has too many internal factions. In, in, inside of the PT. The problem is that those internal factions did not have political weight inside of Congress as external allies did. So as Lula could not say no to internal coalition allies, he had to find illegal resources. So that was the Mensalon scandal. The Mensalon scandal was exactly a mechanism of trying to find out alternative sources of um, money, illegal money, to reward coalitionalize in order to keep them disciplined and voting with a particular agenda. So this system worked quite well until 2005, when one of the members, one of the coalition, decided to open his mouth, Roberto Jefferson. And this scheme apparently exploded. But Lula was very benefited by and very lucky because the internal, the external condition, especially the international condition, was very favorable to Brazil. The commodity prices, the boom of the commodities. So Brazil had a, a tremendous and economic growth, and 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 especially in the second and term in office. So he managed to. To, to, to get re-elected. As a matter of fact, and his government was, you know, the one who initiated this corruption scandal. So when Dilma Rousseff came to power in, in, in 2010, and, and, and she kind of reproduced the same managerial strategy of the coalition. So... Things exploded because, and, and we are no longer in an international favorable situation. Commodity prices are not that high anymore. So the, the revenues that everybody was expecting coming from the pre-sort is not there because the, the price of the oil declined dramatically. So everybody was expecting and, and, you know, a particular 120 dollars a barrel of oil and now it's about 40 so it was a huge decline so the revenue generated by and and this kind of this particular commodity was not as everybody expected and 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 the country continued to offer and to provide a very comprehensive package of social inclusion and the president and 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 somehow denied doing her and campaign for re-election, and the real condition, the real condition that the country was facing. And, and when she was barely re-elected, because she almost lost the, the re-election for just three points, you know, she changed dramatically her macroeconomic policy. So it was a huge policy shift. So, and this created a disjunction between what she had said during the campaign and what 
she was able to deliver. Now she has to implement a very tough fiscal and adjustment because the country is broken. So she no longer has and the source of revenue that she used to have. And her popularity declined dramatically. And, and, and on the top of that, and, and the, the evidence of the petroleum scandal, or the Petrobras scandal, is getting closer and closer to, to the presidency itself. So that's, that's a very complicated situation, what the literature and, and, and calls perfect storm. Thank you so much. Carlos Pereira of the Getulio Vargas Foundation, the co-author of Making Brazil Work, Checking the President in a Multi-Party System. Our guest today on Latin Pulse, joining us from Rio in Brazil via Skype. Thank you so much. Thanks, Rick. Thanks for joining us on Latin Pulse this week. If you'd like to send us your suggestions or comments, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud, or you may write us via email You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. If you're looking for earlier editions of Latin Pulse, we're available in various locations on the web, including iTunes, Facebook, and Flipboard. You can also find us in the Brazilian online game, Minimundos. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, dot org, and then slash... Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org slash Latin Pulse. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse for our entire team, assistant producer Natalie Allinger and technical director Jim Singer. I'm Rick Rockwell. Escuchenos otra vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced at the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university, headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, with music copyright support through Webster University and Link TV. This program is copyright 2015 Las Rocas Productions. Music.